An exceptional evening to everyone as we entreat you to extend your ears and eyes to the end of yet another enigmatic experience. This eve we encounter endless epiphanies, read the ever-present essence of evil in era. Early episodes and embroidered tales allied our detectives and egregious eras eclipse enchantment at the enigmatic end of our novel. We hope to encourage you to entertainment as we, evidently, exude eloquence and etch the ebb of elegance in the eradicated Eden of Tana French's The Likeness. Um, I'm Sarah. I'm here with my um, intrepid podcasters, Spencer and BJ. How are y'all doing? I am immensely impressed. (laughs) Bravo. Well done. It's gonna be a damn shame when I start taking these back over again and just disappoint the audience from from your your two's forays with them. Well, when we only have to do one or two of them, we can put more energy into them, Spencer, than your... Yes. And also... Weekly endeavors. I I, I think that... The both of us take notes rather than just like on the fly think of like, all right, what L words can I just like come up with on the fly? I don't do it on the fly. I spend five minutes during lunch and just see how far I can get. I spend five minutes during my first glass of wine. So there we go. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we are here for part three of Tana French's The Like Theme. We are. Um, so before we got too far into Tana French's The Likeness, I just wanted to do something uh, that we'll probably do every once in a blue moon, um, which is just like a flat out recommendation mm-hmm. um, that either we all have or one of us has, um, but probably not something that we're going to do uh, on the podcast itself uh, for various reasons. Um, I think one of sort of our previous ones was just the broken earth trilogy in general like there it's a really good series and the first book was something that we covered and we all really enjoyed um but there was a short story on lavar burton reads (laughs) called the paper menagerie um that uh, (laughs) yes spencer i i know um that so sarah recommended this uh podcast series where lavar burton does a short story and I told uh, Spencer that out of them, um, he had to listen to the paper menagerie. And I recommended that he did not do this at work. Um, which, and I did not listen at all. Which he didn't listen. Um, it is an incredible short story. Um, to say that it is heart-wrenching undersells it. Um, but it is incredible. I highly recommend it. It's a paper menagerie by Ken Liu. Uh, LeVar Burton does an amazing job reading it. Um, I'm sure it'd be amazing just, you know, read by itself, but um, hearty recommendation. Uh, go out and listen to it. It's, you know, half of half an hour, 45 minutes of your uh, life spent listening to it and then just uh, glorying in the painfulness of it afterwards. Um, but if you are at all prone to tears and don't want other people to see that, um, don't do it in a public space. <laughs> yeah. L- learn from my mistakes. Just That's what you're here when, for, Spencer. Do, ever... <laughs> <laughs> I am here to offer my foibles for the sake of mankind's betterment. And one of those is when BJ tells you, don't watch this at work, he means it. He's not being sarcastic. This is a very well-written, rough ride of a story that I am still thinking about and sticking with me a week later. But, uh, yeah, this is in the realm of stories of where pick your reading place well, because this will be a shared experience whether you want it to be or not. Yeah. Um, so I, I remember, like, in a past episode, we did A Monster Calls, which was not the easiest story and um, heart-wrenching and, and difficult. Um, and I've teased you 
previously on this podcast about rereading Bridge to Terabithia, and I feel like this um, go, goes above and beyond in, in many ways. Um, oh, my, my, well, it's simply because it's, it's much better written. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and it is much, well, it's also much more of an adult audience of a story. Yes. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, so that's a quick segment that um, maybe we'll do every so often when we've read a book that, you know, we may not, we probably won't actually get to um, to on the podcast for, for various reasons. This one, um, I don't feel like having more than one person and even one person crying on a podcast is great radio um so so we will not be doing paper and menagerie yeah i'm looking at my text i was sending you as i was writing this at one point i just say i I quoted something the book said and just said oh don't you dare i'm not allowed to cry at work (laughs) and then that was the mindset i was in and then i continued (laughs) and then i said but spencer it gets worse from there a lot worse um and it does so um but yeah it's and impressive. Uh, but uh, this week we are going to finish up The Likeness by Tana French. Um, next week we are doing uh, a short story by uh, uh, Grand Dame, I would say, yes. of science fiction, um, Ursula K. Le Guin, to be reading She Unnames Them, um, which um, kind of entertained by the shortness of this story. Um, you should take the you know minute and a half that it'll take you to read <laughs> maybe the page and a half. Um, and we'll probably be delving into that. Um, we will be doing another short story um, thereafter, and we're going to take another foray into LeVar Burton Reads, and we're going to be doing um, Playing Nice with... God's Bowling Ball. Thank you, God's Bowling Ball. Um, and that's also by N.K. Jameson, the writer of the Fifth Season trilogy, and a couple of other books that are just um, really impressive. And yeah, we'll be going through that. Um, and then after that, we will be reading Station Eleven. Um, and I don't have the author up because I'm bad at podcasting. It's Emily St. John um, Mandel. Thank you. Yep. Um, and Sarah here to um, provide my safety net. <laughs> Furious googling uh, in the background. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And so those will be probably about the next five or six episodes that uh, we have here, you guys. Uh, but. We should finish the denouement to this, um, and I found something online that said psychological thriller, and I feel like that is a much better appellation for the likeness than murder mystery or or pretty much anything else. Very much And I have a denouement of a cocktail for us. Um, Oh, do tell. Well, it's not great, but I'll tell you about it. So (laughs) I have what I am calling a carrot top, a.k.a. Dublin 75, um, and it is a take on a French 75, which I love, but I blame Levi for this cocktail. Um, he brought over last week a carrot liqueur, although it's really sort of a gin-like thing that tastes like carrots, um, and he said he doesn't really know what he t- what it tastes like when it's made into an actual cocktail, but it's good in a Bloody Mary, so I thought, well, okay. Um, and sort of carrots are a root vegetable and Ireland grows potatoes, also redheads and carrot tops. I don't know. There was a connection there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so Tortured anyway, I have, I have this carrot liqueur and um, a little bit of simple syrup shaken together and topped off with um, champagne. And it's fine. <laughs> 
Uh, it is. This is this is the first cocktail on this podcast that I have concocted that has sort of let me down. Um, so I'm going to have one of these and switch to wine. So kind of like Cassie and Sam's engagement. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Indeed. It is the sort of celebration drink that makes you a little sad. <laughs> Perfect. If we're comparing drinks right now, I ended up just pouring the remainders of my bottle of apple cider into my cup of uh, bourbon, and I'm now drinking that. That's so you may you may have an edge on me. You're a crazy person, Spencer. <laughs> I can't recommend it. Um, this is a really sort of dregs in what's the, in the refrigerator episode we've got going on here. <laughs> I, I was gonna say I feel like that Spencer's like drinking life encapsulated. <laughs> Um, it's that and things that pe- people send me through the mail. My drinking lights, my drinking life summarized, and and the things that your uh, boss gives you. Um, I've mm. I'm very boring and very California. I have a Central Coast Pinot Noir, um, but it is townhouse, so it's definitely not a town, but it definitely is a house. I don't know. <laughs> no. <laughs> I feel I feel like this is one of the episodes that we're all intentionally doing about 30 minutes of intro because none of us really remember the names we of the characters read anymore. We this like a month and a half going ago. <laughs> it, it is. So, so uh, letting the, the listeners behind the, the curtain that we don't really attempt to obscure the uh, what happens behind the scenes. Um, <laughs> we talked about doing this BJ. book. Uh, and I read it about two months ago. Um, I've done a little bit since, but you know we've had some short stories and whatever in between, and and for various reasons have pushed the the, the recordings a little bit further than um, I would have desired had we wanted to go in depth into plot and uh, relationship details. Well, um, luckily we don't actually need to do that. I think we can do this on the fly. Oh yeah, um, we're, we're fine. Yeah, we're fine. Um, we're great. Maybe so we'll we rewrite the ending in a again. more satisfactory way. Ooh, Sarah. Um, usually I'm going to say something not, not particularly politic like that. Um, so we last left off um, when we were talking about uh, basically Cassie filling in as Lexi and her interpersonal relationships in the house. And mm-hmm. we ended yeah. with, um, plot-wise, the mysterious N um, and his eventual reveal and sort of then the um, very actually surprisingly quickly spiraling into the murder solution um Mm -hmm. and sort of how everything blows up and i feel like we can just fairly quickly cover uh at least some of the plot that happens and then we had a couple of things that we wanted to discuss in terms of um looking back a little bit on those interpersonal relationships um the red herrings in the book that as i mentioned last episode so i feel differentiate this between into more of a a suspense or emotional thriller rather than a murder mystery Mm -hmm. um and then uh yeah a little bit more discussion from there maybe a little bit more of um cassie's history and sort of what we think she was going to do and then um whatever else tickles our fans sounds good um yeah so um basically um we uh as i remember cassie sort of figures out who n is by way of some happenstance that turns out to be 
um, Ned, who mm-hmm. we had been introduced to as Eddie, which is sort of one of the other sort of major red herrings, um, and the poor detective work that sort of is rife throughout this novel that allows it to continue in its suspension of disbelief. Um, I would also like to point and- out that if you are a detective who is sort of dealing with small town rural Ireland, like if you were not functioning under the assumption that everyone has like four different names that they go by, you are <laughs> not good at your job. Yeah. And also don't find any of them out and just decide that like, eh, he's probably called this. We'll just go with that. Um, People are very show- situationally named in <laughs> small town Ireland or small town America, really. It- Hence my husband. <laughs> and, and it's telling that uh, she picks up on this lead just because she's listening in on a casual conversation between members of the house and they re- they use the name Ned mm-hmm. and she contains the desire to jump in and say who the hell is Ned and then quickly in her head and over the course of the next 20 pages deduces who Ned is ties him to the cousin that she's aware about finds out c- concludes that he, uh, she, that he and Lexi had a deal going on the side to, for her to sell her interest in the house finds the drop spot and arranges for a meeting with him in the course of about 15, 20 pages. And to also and go back <laughs> to our, our previous episode, like, she does this, all of this, A, only based on the fact that she has found this diary and that she has been on the lookout for someone with the initial N, um, but mm-hmm. also under the specific auspices of, oh, wait, I found the diary and didn't tell anyone about it. Now I have to keep all of the secret. Therefore, no one knows the butter- about it. The butterfly effect is leading to a lot of gaps in this investigation, really. Because she, as you say, she actively suppresses anything that she just discovered about Ned and the Dropbox and anything from Frank and the recording, which I'm sure is going to make for lovely results on the tape when they try to use this in any degree of cri- any degree of criminal trial. Well, clearly it went reasonably because this is all a retrospective. <laughs> um. Sure. Yeah. Let's get to where we actually were <laughs> left off. Um, last episode. Um, I mean, honestly, like, that's a sort of about where we left off because we didn't do, I feel like, an in depth um, rehashing of the plot because at least the second third of the book, it doesn't have a plot. Mm-hmm. It has, here are the relationships, enjoy them. And I think. Watch as they fall apart. Well, to a certain extent, but they didn't really as much in the this second third, I, I would say. Um, yeah. Okay, Spencer. Well, I think they. I mean, I think that they're tenuous. I think that two months. There's underlying tension. Two, mu- yes. two months into this, what I remember is where they really, really start to fall apart. Is at this sort of like impromptu party that is thrown at the mm-hmm. house. Is that is that right, or do we get a real sense that we're? I mean, we we know that we're crumbling, I guess, but do we get a real sense of break before that? One of the key moments we talked about in the last episode is when Rafe disappears for the night. Mm-hmm. Uh, where he disappears, they have no idea where he is, and the other two, the other members of the household start going into Daniel about this, about why aren't you more concerned? Why aren't you more worried about this? How is this not a bigger deal to you? And Daniel maintains his cold exterior, and we start to see that Justin's actually sort of seemingly pondering that this isn't good, I don't really like this, maybe I should leave. And as you say, it all starts to get even worse and worse and worse when it culminates in what appears to be a brief uptick at this little... Midsummer Night's Dream kind of party they throw out of the middle of nowhere that rapidly by the end goes completely to hell for all the people involved. Yep. Um, yeah, and I, I can't remember like... where um, Cassie and and Abby, is that right, are coming back from? Yeah. Um, but everybody else has, like, started this party without them um, and mm-hmm. are drinking this very deadly punch that I drank last week and was better than this cocktail. 
And, um, <laughs> <laughs> hmm. um, but like everybody gets, let's say, real loose real fast. And so relationships get a little weird. Conversations happen that like we are we are in a very sort of carnival kind of situation here where things that are not allowed to happen normally are starting to happen. Conversations that would not normally happen are happening. Um, the rules are relaxed a little bit and weird things happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the most important of those being that uh, Lexi and Daniel share a kiss in the backyard. And well, from that moment and from her stopping it in the process, Daniel deduces who she actually is and more importantly, who she isn't. Yes. Um, and we don't find out, I, I don't remember how much time passes necessarily, um, but things get a little weird after after that night, um, one, yeah, can, can, one might say. Yeah, continuing the trend of her actively hiding whatever she feels necessary from Frank to continue her own personal investigation rather than actually the police's anymore, she does not, she makes active pains to not reveal the fact that Daniel knows about that her identity has been blown. I think in large part just because she wants to be able to remain in the house even longer and feels that she'll be yanked the moment that Frank hears that she is no longer undercover. Yeah, I, f- I feel like sort of all of it comes to, to a head and it's sort of, it needs some retrospection because there's the onion incident where mm-hmm. she, where uh, Cassie... There's, a few, there's quite a few things, mm-hmm. yeah. Cassie as Lexi sort of messes up and then um, it continues on they have their impromptu party which is i think it's after is it after she gets pulled in they all get pulled in for questioning they're pulled in for questioning i think twice because there's definitely one that happens after this okay um yeah it's sort of yeah it definitely spirals into to madness um and it's kind of funny because i know in in my read through it i very much read for who done it? Why and whatever else? And um, I was very much in <laughs> that was a mistake. That. Yeah, it, it was a thorough mistake. And I feel like had I talked to my girlfriend a little bit more in depth before I started this book, um, which it was her recommendation to to read this, which it was a very fun book. I thoroughly appreciate. But I should have had a larger mm-hmm. conversation, which was go more in depth on the interactions and the conversations rather than as a mystery novel because um, because that's where the meat is Mm -hmm. the the plot here is secondary to the the plot here is secondary to the characters in the novel it should be equally if not more secondary to you (laughs) and so remind me I guess this is the second time that everybody gets pulled in for questioning and Cassie gets pulled in with everybody and Frank is like clearly real pissed at her what is mm-hmm. what is the thing that precipitates that? I think she's been there for a week or two weeks or whatever it is and hadn't gotten anywhere. And he's just like, all right, well, either we're pulling you out or something needs to come of this. But this is like near mm-hmm. the end of the book. Yeah. Yeah. It's very. It is. Okay. Well, the timeline gets so murky, too, because, like, you get in this house with Cassie and you sort of feel like, well, we could have been here for, like, three days or we could have been here for, like, six months. And I don't really know what time is anymore. Um, (laughs) So, you know, I don't I I don't really even have a sense of, like, how much time has passed since from her being. I mean, I think it's like three or four weeks, um, but from her being embedded to the end of this story. That seems reasonable, but like I have. I have no idea okay. because because it's told in vignettes. Yeah, and which makes sense because like no one wants to read about the boring parts of people's lives. The actual everyday. Um, 
Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, that it, it's a a large amount of time is spent undercover, just sort of hanging out and teaching English classes. Yeah. Um, but and so yeah, they're they're all pulled in and questioned, and everybody but Daniel's released fairly, you know, at at a certain point. As part of a plan that, that uh, Cassie wants to blow this thing wide open. Yep. Yeah. And Apparently. She, she knows that if she can get Daniel, the father figure, removed from the family, she can get the rest of the children talking. Which she sort of does. <laughs> well, she does, without, without necessarily the clear results that she's after. But she certainly gets them talking, and she certainly now sees all of the various cracks that have formed in this particular family unit just right there on the surface. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As we get to see the resentment that they've increasingly brought to bear, the amount of doubts and anger they have towards Daniel, the thoughts of what other future, what other fates they could have had if they'd been separate from him in this particular house, and how they all now feel kind of trapped as a result of it. Yeah, and also sort of their anger, anger towards Lexi and disrupting it a little bit, and mm-hmm. um, just how even though they were like, oh, you know, we're going to continue in this charade and you know continuing it even once lexi supposedly didn't die and cassie's been instilled and sort of that whole mess um and how much of an influence daniel has and how how as readers we see this is impressively important to him Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because i think before then we had kind of gotten the impression that like everybody was in on this in equal measure, more or less, or at least mm-hmm. with differences so slight that they didn't necessarily matter. But at this point in the book, we really start to understand that, no, this is Daniel's project. And is- everyone has sort of fallen, not even under his spell necessarily, but under the spell of the idea um, for whatever reasons and whatever kind of their neuroses and lackings and, and, and what they need in the world are they have bought into this, but now they're sort of either starting to see or starting to admit to seeing Daniel for kind of what, who he is. Yeah. To, to varying degrees. Mm-hmm. I feel yes. like Abby, for her own reasons, is still at least representing that she's a true believer, um, probably for personal rather than actual reasons. Whereas Rafe is on the other end of the fence of where he is completely rejecting this and feels like it's been something that's been imposed upon him rather than something that he ever actually wanted for himself. And Justin, as per usual, is caught somewhere waffling in the middle. Yep. Do you identify him with, with him, Spencer? <laughs> in some ways, I think more than anything, he just frust- he frustrates me, maybe because <laughs> of that identification. But this is all coming to a head as she's not, they're now even describing the events that led up to what happened to Lexi and talking about what occurred. Um, including the, uh, I, mean, I mean, if I remember correctly, they go into pretty damn extensive detail before Daniel returns home about how Lexi got stabbed, how she ended up where she was, and how they all seem to pretty strongly believe that Daniel either did her in or let her die. Yeah, so it isn't really an excruciating, it's, it's in details of people uncomfortable with the story, mm-hmm. so there's a lot that's not said in detail but a lot of this is what was going on like the important details like um abby and daniel sort of left the house and and gave uh rafe and justin a project and like oh and there was a you know the bloody knife and we had to clean it and you know we were just sitting and staring at the clock and it's just like 
that doesn't tell anybody anything other than like your emotional state of mind and what you were sure. mm-hmm. you know doing so it is telling in a character narrative but not in a plot narrative well to try to offer a plot narrative imposed upon it uh, <laughs> from what they say the particular conflict that led to Lexi's death was them discovering that she had intended to sell her part of the interest in the home to Daniel's cousin whose name is you know Eddie Ned whatever whatever you mm-hmm. want to call him uh, they confront her with this it goes into a full-fledged argument and one of them who's not specified right now at the time stabs her she runs out of the house and upon realizing that there's blood in the floor and that she's been stabbed Daniel and Justin go in pursuit while Abby and Rafe stay behind to clean up the house oh, I thought it was Abby and Daniel but you're probably no Justin Justin goes out that that would make sense um so from a looking back was she stabbed by accident as much as anyone is stabbed by accident yeah yeah i think i don't know i think that she was probably stabbed by accident um but at the same time i think that kind of in the explanation and even in the kind of final explanation as much as we get one that we get of the incident i think that the people in this house know still know more um, mm-hmm. than we here. I think we still have a sort of protective shell coming up as much as we can have one with the story of obf- obfuscating blame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, mean, I, I agree. They're still withholding quite a bit, yeah. and I think they're who they ultimately are blaming for this is the act of the three people in the room blaming the fourth one that's not there. Mm-hmm. Um, because in terms of their description, particularly Justin, who, as we discover, is the potential knife wielder based on what conclusions Cassie reaches at the end is putting all of the blame on Daniel that when they find Lexi in this isolated little um, uh, famine cabin they do, um, Daniel's the one that goes in he's the one that examines the body and he's the one that kind of sends Justin away or keeps him outside while he does what he does in terms of preparing the scene yeah and the direct implication that he's drawing from this is that or that well, Cassie draws from this is that Lexi may well have been alive at this time, and Daniel saw fit that she not be around to report what particularly occurred. At least that's one of the conclusions that Cassie seems to reach about this. Yeah, and a possible, if not likely, scenario that, you know, there's no way, or no easier good way of confirming. Mm -hmm. No, not not at all. The only, only witness we have to it is Justin, who was not in the room, and would have his own very extensive reasons for wanting to blame someone else. But as, sorry, go ahead, BJ. No, 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 go ahead, ahead, Spencer. I was going to say, okay, moving on. (laughs) Yeah, I was just going to say, pretty much at the moment that they reach this point in the story, again, content in the fact that they're kind of venting their sins to the person that they harmed so that they can rebuild a family life together, not realizing who she really is, father returns home. Terrifyingly. (laughs) (laughs) Terrifyingly. And given that father, given that, I'm going to keep calling him father, which is creepy, Daniel discovers, or Daniel's already very much aware of who Cassie mm-hmm. is, and has been playing a cat and mouse game with her for the last three chapters of trying to essentially get it revealed on the record to everybody else or to the police that he's aware of who she is and that who she actually is. Um, he, in about five seconds, realizes the game is up, that a confession has occurred, and he needs to now find a way to protect the members of his family with respect to what just happened. And he goes about a rather extreme plan for doing so. He pulls a gun, the 
quite literal Chekhov's gun that it revealed <laughs> earlier on in this book, um, and proceeds to point it at Cassie, while everybody else freaks the hell out because they still have not the slightest clue what is happening and why two of the members of their family are now threatening to kill each other across the room with seemingly no lead-in for that. Also, where the hell Cassie got a gun? That's also a bit of a surprise to mm -hmm. them. This rapidly proceeds to start to go to hell as they <laughs> try to intervene on this and Daniel rather brutally and callously pistol whips them down to the ground and continues to exert the control he feels necessary to find a resolution to this. Which his resolution ultimately is to commit a confession to the record that he assumes is being actively recorded all while the F all while the whatever the Irish equivalent of the SWAT team is rapidly driving to this home. And was anybody surprised by how quickly the SWAT team gets there? This is a pretty rural, remote community, and they're like three minutes out? Well, and we well, have been told that, like, everything was being monitored. But I, but, but I, I had, like, okay, but also assumed that that had, books. like... Right, because they are, like, it is a suburb of Dublin. It is a rural yeah. suburb of Dublin. Yeah, but it takes them, like, 45 minutes to get there from Dublin. Yeah, I don't well, know. I there... wouldn't put it, put it past. And, I, like, listen, I will fully acknowledge <laughs> no all of the plot holes that exist in this, <laughs> in this plot. And I will not apologize to any, for any of them. But to your point, Spencer, knowing Frank. Knowing well, Frank. Well, knowing Frank, but also, like, Spencer, you live mm -hmm. in something that vaguely represents a city, sort of. Um, and <laughs> 400,000 people go on, sort of. <laughs> yeah, but it's in Florida. Um, <laughs> fine, go on, point taken. So, but there, but if you're when classes finish going home, or you know, at the end of your work day going home, things take a certain amount of time, but you know, at 9 10 p.m., it's completely different. So, mm -hmm. I lived in a suburb of Baltimore and worked in essentially the center of Baltimore city for quite a number of years and getting to work on a late night or a weekend probably took mm, somewhere on the order of 15 ish minutes, maybe not even. And there are very many times that it, you know, driving or taking a train or whatever took between 40 minutes and an hour. So, mm -hmm. I was not in a rural part of anything because that's essentially what the East Coast is like. But, like, a, you know, the distances that they're describing, depending on when they were doing things, could all add up. No. No. <laughs> Again, they're in, it's the SWAT team in full gear arriving in truck. The house is like a two mile driveway to even get to it. And they're there inside of less than five minutes because of the, the length of the conversation. But this is also—it's fine. It's Frank. I, like I will say though, this is also like so close on the heels of these interviews. Frank may have suspected something was going yeah. to go to hell, or even had even tailed. So yeah, uh, he might have was going tailed or expended some additional resources that we still don't quite on these resources, but you know, he, well, in it, the as the ending reveals, the he isn't logic. Of okay. <laughs> So, so Spencer, I just want to say that literally all of County Wicklow is within 20 miles of Dublin. Mm-hmm. Like, literally, like, maybe 30 at the, the very edge. So, like, it's, it can't be that far if, you know, you have your blues and twos on and you're just going as fast as you want. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying. <laughs> Unless... 
And, and, and I'm saying unless they're going 200, they're still not getting there in the time this takes place. But again, this is really not, ne- not a necessary argument to make. <laughs> the, the key plot point that results here is that yeah. Daniel quotes a confession to the record, blaming himself entirely for what has occurred, for the murder, for everything else, uh, absolving all of those around him from any potential for liability. And particularly and then, Justin for any potential for per- liability. Particularly Justin. And then proceeds to open fire on Lexi, who in an act of self-defense, drops him, right pretty much when the police burst in the room. Uh, then proceeds, we then proceed through a very intentionally muddled and confused chapter as she's rapidly taken into custody mm-hmm. and protection by the fellow police. Apparently Sam and Frank are also in there with the SWAT team, which again, they had to have been tailing for them to get there, the scale they're talking about. Um, she's pulled out. She's almost immediately sheltered away to the to a mix between medical personnel and internal internal investigations, all without having the slightest degree of knowledge as to whether Daniel is alive. Which becomes apparent to us inside of about of a chapter that no, he apparently died right there on the floor with Abby shelter, with Abby, Abby cradling his body. It's also pretty much strongly implied that though he opened fire on Lexi, he very much aimed to miss, and that this was an act of suicide by cop. Mm-hmm. And from there. Things drift apart, I suppose one would say, of this family unit. Uh, how, how would we want to wrap up where the plot goes from here? Well, I mean, we get... Uh, yeah, we get... And it's not an epilogue, but it seems almost like an epilogue of kind of some some of these characters. But the one I think we get m- most of, if I'm remembering correctly, is Abby. Um, very much so. Partially because that is who Cassie was closest to in the house, I would say. Um, mm-hmm. But also because I think everybody else is like drifted specifically, less specifically away. I don't know how you describe drifting, well, but um, well, there's basically eight characters. I think we can say pretty quick where they end up. Yeah. Um, Justin Justin ends up being a professor at a boarding school in the in a, was it over in the UK or was it somewhere someplace in the north? Um, I think it was in the north of Ireland. Um, who's seemingly unhappy but is finding a life unto himself mm-hmm. while being constantly hounded about his orientation by his students because 12 year old boys are little bastards yeah. um, that Rafe has gone in and become part of his father's life accepted a job from him developed a new social group and officially according to Abby at least he appears happy or at least has a life and is functioning with it uh, Frank gets a very, very small slap on the wrist equivalent from wasting massive amounts of police resources on what is ultimately a essentially bungled police investigation. Uh, Abby ends up exactly the life that she said that she would live in the event that her life in the house didn't work out, of where she's living in a tiny little flat while... What job is she working again? It's something related something related to her uh, degree and um, graduate degree. I don't remember. Did she actually say? I don't. I don't, don't remember either. But like, he, I'm, she's I'm, living in a. Tunnel. Yeah, I'm picturing her as a sort of librarian, but I don't know if that's really true or not. Yeah, but she's clearly clearly not in any way content with the life that she predicted that she would end up with. Mm-hmm. Um, who else is here? Sam and Cassie end up together, which we're going to talk about that to at least some small degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's Elwyn. Also, our mystery woman is finally possibly unmasked of where we find out the prior nine or ten steps of Lexi's life eventually leading back to the moment of origination that she is a native Australian from the outback living on a ranch who lost her mother early in life and forever then since has been running from the possibility of loss perhaps up until 
very shortly before the moment of her death, when a potential at a new future was being set. And BJ, I think you had a couple of things you wanted to say about that point. Yeah, I, I think there were a couple of things. So we, we get a bunch of the history of um, who Lexi really was um, and her history of running from things when things get quote-unquote real. Um, and uh, the one of the things that, that I honestly didn't really pick up on um, but was... Uh, I was encouraged to to talk about as a talking point for the podcast from one of our uh, shall we say avid listeners um, was that one. Um, she really was looking at a sum of money that was not necessary to run um, the two hundred thousand or what or uh, I believe it was that she would get from the sale of her share of White Thorn Manor or however that was supposed to work out um, would really have. It is really way more than a plane ticket and, uh, you know, some pocket cash to, to start over. And given that she was pregnant, um, she may have been either thinking about sort of committing to the life, maybe, who knows, um, or running but committing to raising this now child who I don't believe we ever really find out um, who the father is, but... Yeah, we, we, we certainly have a character in the story assume that it's his child. Yeah, there there are significant indications. Um, at one point, Rafe straight up... Whenever things going to hell, Rafe straight up attacks Justin saying, that was my baby mm-hmm. that you killed, or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. So he clearly believes that it's his, but we have no confirmation whatsoever of that. Yeah. Um, the Anyway, so it's it's sort of a what was her running versus not really running plan um the evolution of this character and sort of the broken relationships and trying to find family uh that have characterized her pasts and maybe her future Mm -hmm. and one of the things that really you know i'm not sure what she really wanted out of the situation especially um kind of at the at the very end but what strikes me at least about what cassie assumes about her and what we know about her kind of from other characters is that no matter what she might have actually wanted, it seems like to me, she was so stuck in this rut of running Mm -hmm. that that was the muscle memory, right? That was what was always going, that was always going to be the first reaction. Um, And I think it might've bit her in the ass this time in ways that she was not expecting because she's always been successful at running before. It's, it's interesting, too, because Cassie's working under the assumption throughout pretty much all of this text, and one of the things that ingratiates her to Abby is that she says that uh, Lexi wasn't going to run this time or wasn't going to sell her interest. Uh, and she clearly seems to believe that to some certain degree, but I don't think she's got a very accurate read on the character there. Yeah. It seems like she was... That Lexi's decision-making seems to be very much driving her to run once again. The open question that you raise, BJ, is whether she was intending to run somewhere new to start a family unto herself or not. Um, which, as you said, the amount of money that she was taking, it was clearly different than any, than any of her prior efforts to run, but then she was in a very different position than she was in any of her prior efforts to run. She didn't have a partial interest in a potential estate in Ireland that could have been worth millions. So... All we have, all we have in terms of insight into the character of Lexi, is a few data points of prior events that they can confirm, a brief conversation with a father figure that hasn't seen her in twenty years, and then a hell of a lot of assumptions from various other characters that have their own reasons to want to put on this masked woman things about themselves. 
And that was, I mean, that was Lexi's main selling point and main characteristic. And the only thing we really yeah. know about her was that she could become whoever you wanted her to be. Yep. And the people were all too willing to seize up on that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's really astonishing at the end of this book how little we know about her. Um, because as soon as we start learning these sort of like actual facts about where she was and what she was doing, you realize, oh, everything we thought we knew Mm -hmm. was all smoke and and mirrors. And by the end, the main character who has invested her, a a key portion of her, her psyche and her career for the sake of finding justice for this woman can only come to the conclusion that she hopes in the last few minutes of her life and that, you know, moments of liberation as she's, you know, dying or fleeing or whatever else, she had a lifetime of running still before her that she could have done. Because at that that point, that's all she really understands about this woman. Whatever assumption she had before, that's all she's really left with and that's all that she can hope for her is that she had that moment of forever lasting freedom. Yeah, and it's it's a weird absence that we're left with um, in kind of the middle of this novel. Because we do learn more about Lexi's background and kind of where she came from. But I think that makes her more of a mystery. Mm-hmm. So, speaking of mysteries. Yeah. <laughs> where are you going there? <laughs> Can we talk about this engagement? Uh, okay, Cassie, Sam, let's Define go. Define a mystery. Uh, well, maybe it's not why? so much of a mystery as it is just stupid. I, I, I feel that why is a mystery we've all shared ever since about the age of three. <laughs> and it, 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 com- it comes to the fore in this book. <laughs> Why these two? Why? Why together? Why forever? It's crazy. I mean, do you think they actually will get married? God, I hope not. Well, I, I, here's a little here's a little bit of thing I learned. Uh, I read the Wikipedia entry for the first book, and uh, apparently, in the first book, it actually ends with her having children being married to this guy. So yeah, if the first book is providing an accurate history of where, yep, they do. Ugh. I wonder if all of her. Oh, God, Sarah, that was impressive. I was going to say, I wonder if all of her books are kind of a retrospective, but but Sarah, you just um, popped that balloon with your expressive... Disdain? Yeah. I just... Ugh, I don't buy it. You, 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 know, really? you know what this reminds me of? Sorry, I, I, I never been there. BJ, yes, we were saying. I was going to say I 100% buy it. I just, I think it's awful. <laughs> but I 100% buy it. I, this yeah. has like this the same feel of like um she stayed with me but while i was deployed and between this one and my next deployment we're gonna get married um or well um you know it's my high school sweetheart and she stayed with me through throughout college when we were long distance and i slept with all those women while i was pledging fraternity or just any except of those reversed other... like all of that is reversed <laughs> sure <laughs> yeah yeah um, and so i you know been, like but... re-skimming this scene where sam asks cassie to marry him and i'm just like what is going on here like what is happening the language that is used around the words that are said is like super cringy mm-hmm is Tom French married? Uh, yeah, you're, 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 you're reaching the, po- the, que- the question I was about to raise. I don't know. I'll what, find what? out. You all keep so, talking. I'll find well, out. Yeah. So, so what I was going to say is, so this kind of reminds me of one of our conversations that we had about Isaac Asimov, which um, he basically didn't write any 
romantic relationships into any of his books for quite a while because he started writing like while he was in either late high school or early college or something like that and basically was a stereotypical nerd never talked to girls and he was just like well i didn't know how to write it so i wasn't gonna write something really dumb so married two, married yeah, two daughters married. okay so so i never uh wrote any relationships or any women for a really long time into my books because I was nerdy and dumb and didn't know anything. And um, I love that he's open about that too. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of like, all right, well, once I figured out, you know, and started dating, I started including them a little bit more into my books because I thought given that I eventually had experience and um, I could do so. Um, what, well, and see what... what, what like sorry spencer um go ahead kind of my response i think bj to your sort of these are the types of relationships this reminds me of i don't think you're i don't think you're off but i do think it is like specifically in this situation this sort of like i am broken right now oh this person is here oh he seems to like me i guess that's fine and like that's yeah. what we're doing here and like yeah. i know a lot of marriages happen like that like i know yeah. they do it, it, it's just one of those moments of where i mean this is literally going through the character's head as this marriage proposal happens is where she's convinced he's about to break up with her and she's you know almost perversely looking forward to just the resolution of that moment and instead he proposes well, and, and i would recommend anyone who's having that mindset <laughs> at the moment a marriage proposal occurs ponder your state of mind well just pause ponder just pause them. for yeah. a couple of days maybe um yeah but she doesn't even like back him through this book like she clearly no. doesn't like him he's yeah he's there she, I mean, she consciously the first opportunity chose a life separate from him and did it without a thought towards what it would cost him and was very she, annoyed whenever she had to re-enter any sort of vestiges of a life with him right like all of those phone calls right. just annoyed her every I time think, she I had to like, talk to him just annoyed her yeah I feel like at this point, Lee would point out it's like the relationship that you have with puppies, Spencer, <laughs> that you just hate dogs. Um, but sometimes they end like, up in your house. Right. And yeah. you just live with them and it's fine. But like if you had a choice, this would not be the choice that you would have made. Hmm. I didn't want to paint it in this particular light, but we can continue down this metaphor if we want. <laughs> Now, uh, the, the, the two things I would draw out of this um, is that, uh, A, it struck me, if you, wanted, if you wanted to make it offer a character justification, you guys have said that it's comforting, it's simple, it's providing a solution to the war inside of her mind. It also could come across as a conscious rejection of Lexi, finally. That she's been building her life, she's been, for the last few substantial portions of this book, melding her life together with Lexi and what she felt Lexi was and wanted and trying to embrace Lexi's life. And now that she's learned everything else about her, now that that life is in tatters, she's seemingly taking the most polar opposite course possible from any choice that Lexi would have made for her. That could be a conscious or a subconscious act. We want to assign a textual explanation for it. I don't buy it. It doesn't seem to be real or true yeah. to the character that's been previously presented, but it's possible. This also, and I... I despise psychologically analyzing writers but this does kind of at times remind me of circumstances of where a writer has intervened their own personal life in the text or intervened um 
a solution that they would have taken rather than necessarily one that their character, or one, one they may, maybe hoped that their character would have taken despite what was previously. Because it comes out of nowhere. It's not where the book has been building up to it. All. Well, um, and mm-hmm. part of my question, part of my question is, like, let's say, let's flip all of this in terms of gender, right? And say that Lexi is, or I'm sorry, Cassie is... Um, is actually Frank in this situation or whatever, right? Like, let's say yeah. that this was all all flipped. Mm-hmm. This would not be the resolution that we get. The male detective in this situation who has been in this harrowing undercover, whatever, whatever, would not come out of that situation and marry the safe girl. Like, we would then get a sort of James Bond or a Luther or a... Like, there are all kinds of tropes that we can play into of these sort of men who have been hurt in these situations or disappointed in these situations or what whatever. And the easy narrative thing is to have them end up sort of alone as rogue cops, as Franks, Mm -hmm. for example, um, and not to sort of marry the person they are coming out of the situation and sort of falling into the arms of. And like that really annoys me because we have not been dealing with it. We have not been building up to that as you're, as you pointed out, Spencer, we have not been building up to that this entire story. And it's interesting. I I think that's part of the reason that it struck me so weird is that we, you're right. We so rarely get that kind of sword to plowshares moment in these kind of books. It's just not the result you typically expect because it's not the result the bill, the book has been written around and it, as you said, it feels there is an element of being gendered about this solution, feeling that this is in some way more fitting because it's a female character rather than it not being really fitting for the plot. Mm-hmm. And I guess I wonder if we had read their first book, if this worked out a little bit better. And maybe, yeah. Uh, but I, I, I feel like I'd be hard-pressed to find something in a different book that made this better. And And the reason that I say that is that there were stilted interactions within this book. And mm-hmm. I, again, you know, I wonder it's how much ton of French storyboarded or, or whatever and, and sort of had everything laid out versus, okay, well, in the last book, eventually they get married and have kids, so I do need to get there. And, um, you know, sort of as we discussed for Binti, she had scenes in her head mm-hmm. of... Mm-hmm things that happened and things that made good reading and you know part of her sort of reasoning of why she loves sam is a decent scene but it doesn't jive with anything else no the Mm -hmm. difficulty that she has with sam because she's sort of gotten close with frank mackey also is you know an interpersonal an interesting interpersonal relationship but when you string those beads together and you get something that's garish it's hard to say well this actually forms a necklace rather than whatever it is that happened no this is like the weirdest dear reader i married him situation that i've ever been involved in (laughs) okay so that begs a question (laughs) um but maybe we'll adjust that off um off air I mean, in terms of the relationship she has with other characters as part of her as Cassie rather than her as Lexi, she seems to have a much closer rapport with Frank than she ever does in, in terms of Sam. Mm-hmm. Most of her descriptions of Sam and the relationship that she depicts with Sam is much more the equivalent of having a cute puppy around the house rather than actually a equal romantic partner or even friend. And I so, think I made the point in the first episode of this yeah, that like she's did. a cat person and she needs a cat. <laughs> and she happens to have a dog. You did. 
But, like, if you're not a dog person, you shouldn't have a dog. Although, don't drop them off on the side of the road. Like, you should keep your dog if you have a dog. Anyway, um, she's a cat person, and she needs a cat. I feel like this is might be saying something <laughs> about your pets, but... Um, but you, you guys are saying this too while my dog is just staring forlornly up at me at the ground. He's just like he can't yeah. hear, but maybe he knows what we're saying. <laughs> he, he knows how you feel. Um, but I guess the other thing that I, I kind of want to put in as a an amelioration, maybe, which is the interesting stories that you tell about your relationship with your partner. I feel like there are some that are, you know, sort of outstanding points, which is like vacations that you took together or Mm -hmm. something special that you did with one another, but that isn't what 90% of a relationship is. Sure. Mm -hmm. 90% of a relationship is, is probably going to be at least relatively boring, but you enjoy each other's company enough that it works. Mm -hmm. Whereas having a good rapport with a coworker that's going to be an interesting story. Mm-hmm. And the 90% of the time that you spend spend either not interacting or them just being like vaguely competent is not the interesting part of the interaction. And so if you're telling the story, you tell the story of the time that Sam came over and you had a fight even though you had made... Uh, you know a bolognese sauce and it was souring on the stove while you tried to figure out what your future was with this man and you told the story of how you came up with this awesome insane undercover work with your coworker, who usually was really a lot more difficult and would often just like take the fruit that you had for lunch and just be like thanks thanks love like i forgot to you know pack my lunch today but that's 90% of your interaction. And I buy that, and I agree with that. And the flaw with that in terms of putting it on it's this still book, though... It's still It's fine. It's the framing, is that we never get to see that aspect that they have a healthy relationship. No, there are no book's... nice moments. Like, there's no the one picnic, or the one date, or the one anything. The, yeah. The, 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 the happiest moments she describes about Sam are being couched with, he helped me in terms of a rough moment in my life when I lost my true love and best friend. And that's about it we get. We get her, that he's been supportive of her as kind of a rebound kind of thing now that, I think it was Rob was the name of her, co- of, her yep. of her partner that she lost. Yeah. Um, whatever happened there. Um, and that Sam's, you know, helped her through that rough moment in her life. And then we get like thir- 20 pages of that and then the murder happens. And then nothing good is depicted about their relationship from that point forward other than tension as she's actively trying to find a way out of that relationship. We never get that, even the slightest hint, that as you suggest, BJ, there are those normal moments of support, whatever else, behind the scenes that inform a future for a healthy relationship. Yeah. So, well, do you let's think talk about that something Tana else. Frank doesn't have yeah. a good relationship with her husband? I'm sure um. they're fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to assume anything about that. Um, well, one thing we talked about is that uh, w- this book was you know, presented to us, and we went into this with the assumption that it was a mystery, and that, as you, started, as you said, it's much more accurately described as a psychological kind of thriller, or even a character thriller. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does have some hallmarks of mystery that are very classically tropey, like, as we said, red herrings. There are several red herrings over the course of this book that are hallmarks of classic mystery novels. I feel like 
a classic mystery red herring needs to be something that you could possibly dismiss. Yes. Mm-hmm. And or so, that has at least some tie-in or relevance to the overarching plot. Right. And so yeah, these have tie-ins, and I, I think that they are accurate red herrings for a suspense, but to call them like a mystery red herring is um, to not be creative a red herring. Yeah, what, I want what, like a Miss Marple red herring um, <laughs> that like is a rabbit hole by which you are willing to go down in a legitimate way. But I feel like none of these red herrings was I... I mean, I guess that they were interesting and within the plot, you could see how... <laughs> You could see how someone might think that these are ways that we might be going, but they never felt real. It's not helped by the fact that, again, our perspective on these red herrings does not care about them and doesn't really want to investigate them. Yes, yes. What what are some examples we have of red herrings over the course of this? I think we referenced already the the cousin as being an an ex... Well, Mm -hmm. so I feel like the cousin has so many aspects of a red herring. it's, It's more like a, you know red whale because (laughs) so there's the cousin who has all of his backstory who's also n yes Mm -hmm. who has all of the backstory who's also the shady dude that lexi has her dealings with selling the house which is i feel like another one and a half to the shady cousin Mm -hmm. yeah and so it's like three aspects of the story that are vaguely tied to the murder itself and the reason behind it but not suspect wise yeah and and so i feel like if you were even in a sort of like robust episode of law and order or something right like those would be (laughs) those would be three different people throw in a fourth he's also offered as the potential baby daddy from very early on Oh, that's right yeah yep this guy's wearing a lot of hats yeah, and so that's a little annoying he because once necessary. he's sort of dismissed, like, that's the only other anything that we have in this story. I mean, there are, like, vague Well, so there's the other major Go ahead. crazy red herring, but... Which they invest a lot of time into is the, the whole Irish nationalist right. and possible yeah. threats from the IRA kind of plot. Right, which, which is going to be like my point. Very... It's, the, it's the sort of village kind of thing, right? Yeah. yeah. But I feel like that's a very maybe English thing because I don't know I guess I've as a an American looking in it's just like oh and then there were the troubles yeah it also seems to be a little bit of like a Dublin-y kind of thing too right like the um presuppositions that a sort of specifically Dublin police force might bring in to yes a sort of suburb of Dublin but like clearly a little backwater in the way that it operates and kind of deals with outside forces. Yep. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was one of those things of where, knowing that this was set in Ireland, I kind of jokingly thought to myself, I wonder if they'll work the troubles into this. And boy, howdy, they did. It's an utter rabbit hole that that has very little relation to the actual resolution of any of this. And yeah, it, it was there. Well, and as we mentioned sort of off air, the, the resolution or the, the impact that it has on it has to do with the, the major character that we talked about last time or the time before that um, has to do with the house, right? <laughs> right. That, that's so the story. The major character yeah. is the house. Yeah. And so so the real murder that happened is the loss of the Yeah. True. Which was legitimately <laughs> sad. Like, I was really bummed out by this. <laughs> it's like, okay... 
guys, I really don't care about any of the people. Like, they can die. Whatever. I don't know. But and Daniel house. sort of committed but suicide. But like, oh, come on. Yeah. But it was like, like one of the things of where I found when Daniel got shot or whatever else, I did not find that particularly shock, shocking. But when they say very offhand 12 pages later that, oh, yeah, the house burned down. I was like, the fuck? Build on that one, please. So, so which, so is the house harder or some origami? <laughs> uh, well, obviously origami, but yes. know, 90, 90% of our listeners may not know what, may not catch that reference right now. Yeah. So Specifically, I, unfolding origami and finding writing on the back of it reduced me to a little puddle before I even started reading. But we'll, we'll maybe talk about that on air at a later point. Um, so, so yeah, I just, um, it's interesting because... I guess I expected ton of French to have the house turn a little bit somehow, um, and I, that's probably a trope. Um, but I expected the house to have a different feel, and her to describe that as everything else was unfolding. And I guess I just didn't get that sense. I got the sense that like the house was a character, mm-hmm. sort of up until the murder mystery became what she wanted to talk about. Yeah, and then the house sort of became. Uh, a little bit more of an afterthought and then you sort of get the denouement, the, the how everything sort of wound up with everything that was important to Cassie and the relationships that she had in this like couple week period and mm-hmm. that all of these people had sort of just really fell apart. Yeah. It's interesting. I was pretty strongly into this book and found it really interesting and enjoyed the character interactions pretty much up until the moment of when Daniel discovers who Cassie is. Because from that point onward, Cassie suddenly flips a switch in her head and becomes entirely dedicated to now solving the mystery. Uh, In part because I guess she now sees that she has no potential future in the home. And from that about last 15-20% of the book, it no longer really grabbed me as much. It felt like it was very much rushing to a conclusion that had not been previously set up. So I guess the question for me is, if you wanted to write that middle two-thirds three-fifths or whatever of the book how would you do it because i feel like that's the i mean yeah there's the whole dublin murder squad and there's a whole series but for me since i haven't read all of this this book was uh you know a fifth or a third or whatever it is um tacked on of eat on each side of a stranger inhabiting somebody else's relationship and the interesting relationships that she has within this house Mm -hmm. um and there are some actually other books that i've thoroughly enjoyed that had something along this premise um and i thought that they were interesting ways of going about it but i guess in some ways i feel like this was a really good idea that she already had a series going and kind of like Hmm put it in there um but i don't i don't know how else it could have been written but i also feel like the intro and outro were sort of afterthoughts and i guess the other book that i'm referring to is double star um and sort of just a quick overview it's basically something happens to somebody important and they get an actor to sort of fill in for him and it's sort of early on in and things that he's doing and he essentially fills in for a couple decades. The, the plot of the movie Dave, gotcha. Might have predated it, but maybe Probably not. did, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I wonder, and it's interesting, um, because, like, obviously none of us have read the first book in the series, but I start, I start to wonder what the differences would have been if she had started with this second book 
and written that. And you can write this book with whatever the sort of situations um, and the operations of the first book that went wrong. Like, you can write those in a way that you don't need to have had a book before them to kind of deal with that. But you can do some more robust allusions or whatever to them. Um, But you could Mm -hmm. write this book first and have that sort of middle third as um, the real spotlight and kind of build from there. But I wonder how much she was hamstrung by what had happened in the first book and where she needed to get to. Because obviously, Spencer, as you said, like she ends up with, I mean, Cassie ends up with Sam at the end of the first book and they have children. So like, there's something you have to do, I suppose. Although I guess you didn't necessarily have to do it in this book. Like maybe we could have spent some more time on that. Um, Have either of you read a book called We Went to the Woods? Nope. Heard heard of it, never read yeah, it. Yeah, so I haven't either. It's been getting, though, a lot of um, kind of buzz on book podcasts and things like that. Um, and so, BJ, your question about, like, what would the middle third of this book look like if it were kind mm-hmm. of confined to that and spun out from there? Um, the Let me just read you the Amazon description of this, at least part of this book. Um, certain that society is on the verge of economic and environmental collapse, five disillusioned 20-somethings make a bold decision. They gather in upstate New York to transform an abandoned farm, once the site of a turn-of-the-century socialist commune, into an idyllic, self-sustaining compound called the Homestead. Mac, a publicly disgraced grad school dropout, believes it's her calling to write their story. She immediately falls in love with all four friends, seduced by their charisma and grand plans, and deeply attracted to their secrets but it proves difficult for Mac to uncover the truth about their nightly disappearances and complicated loyalties, especially since she is protecting her own past. Okay. <laughs> Which of these came out first? Because there is a case of plagiarism at play. <laughs> um, so this We Went to the Woods is a very new book. Okay. <laughs> they better be playing Tanya French some proceeds because that is... <laughs> right? I mean... That is... Wow. Yeah. Take some, some very similar things. And I guess, you know, uh, another recommendation for our readers and... Um, Sarah, I don't know whether you'd actually like this, but I think Double Star is sort of the opposite side of like, it doesn't have the house in it, but the um, Double Star by um, Robert Heinlein, Mm -hmm. you know, has very much a somebody filling in somebody else's life and it doesn't have the pullout end in the last third, essentially. Oh, interesting. Um, And so, so anyway, it's a lot of fun. And so I guess it's that... That I, I think that you're right in your characterization is that she was hamstrung in where she had to end up. And mm-hmm. um, I think this is one of those books and that suffers from analysis. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, yeah. we probably all would have said, yeah, well, that, you know, engagement with Sam, well, that was complete crap. And, you know, but it was sort of a minor thing. And once you start talking about it, it's just like, wait a minute. <laughs> Like I'd almost yeah, be curious to try to I'd almost be curious to try to edit this edit like the middle half of this book and maybe the initial chapter into its own standalone novella. Leave out an introduction, leave out an ending, and just have it as some kind of description of her almost writing a journal as she's going through this. Let the readers reach their own conclusions from there. I think that might almost be more a more successful work if it was been structured around that rather than having to, like you guys have said, grounding it in its existing mythos. 
But your authentic there. undercover experience. <laughs> That'd be an interesting title. But <laughs> it's one of those circumstances where I'm sure her publisher would have just, you know, crucified her if she tried to write anything different than what was already a best-selling art. Something that was already part of a best-selling series. Yeah. Yeah. So well, what else do we need to talk about? Uh, I think I'm about. pretty good with this. I mean, I feel like you know we shouldn't continually excoriate authors for for things that that are sort of necessary things. You know, as much as I like to tease George R. R. Martin for certain decisions that he's made. I mean, like in terms of certain financial and and other <laughs> like incentives from his publisher, I'm sure they make at least vague sense. Yeah. Um, where again, I think this is. There are parts of this book that are incredibly good, Mm -hmm. and I think that being part of a series might have made things difficult, but man, that center half of the book, or however much it was was gripping it and really it was, was yeah. wonderful it was to read and like i enjoy i enjoyed reading this book um mm-hmm. i had a good time reading this book i have there were moments where i was even in the moment sort of pull, pulled out of it but like for the most part i read this book and i was like yes i am glad i read that <laughs> yeah it was a great summer book now granted yeah. You know, I always, I, I put the sort of like, okay, how long am I going to remember this for? And when am I going to be drawing on it for references afterwards? And we are still talking about it, um, but it's two months later and I remember practically nothing about it. So <laughs> <laughs> You've done very well for someone who remembers practically nothing about it. Yeah. Um, I guess but, like I, what I would say is like, I'll re- I think I'll remember like the middle portion yeah. and like those character relationships, but a mm-hmm. lot of the plot points are going to get hazy and i think the other thing that i'll really remember is places character yes and um spencer might might do a little jig when i say this but i feel like i should go back and attempt to read um some more of tolkien because i feel like the places character (laughs) is um something that he did um i also feel like i should visit the english countryside to actually appreciate what he was writing about mm-hmm. um but but i feel like her descriptions of place and the character that those places have were so good and didn't happen in the last chunk of the book no we didn't yeah. get any of that i mean we were really beyond i guess um that kind of thing and then it became about plot and you went once those sort of places character drop away you're like oh wait the plot is actually kind of thin <laughs> Yeah, yeah, very much. Um, but it, I guess it would have been really nice to have one more of those scenes, and I want to, I want to say like maybe having like an interview room being one of those. I feel like would have tied it together a little bit more, mm-hmm. and then maybe something after that because because the um, first squad room description was so good and then the feel of her apartment was so good and then white thorn was so good i feel like it just it isn't balanced it's just like a not it's not a balanced book and when you read it and don't talk like don't talk about it intensely like analyzing the different parts and just read through it for the story like that imbalance isn't i feel like is apparent because the plot wraps up in that chunk yeah and mm-hmm. but like when you look back and look at the plot and she's like well there isn't a lot of plot <laughs> um that those descriptions become apparent that they're lacking so. all right well when you look 
reader or listeners look back at your life and discover that there wasn't a lot of plot, we are here with content. <laughs> <laughs> we do our best. And, wow. You know, We're taking on a whole new career with that one. Hopefully you and, and the places that you've been have good personality to balance that out. Yeah. All right, so if anybody wants to know about more of our content, they can fill the void in your life. Where can they go? Um, all sorts of places, but for the most part, they can go to mangumtalks.com. Um, you can get all of our content. Uh, currently, Spencer and Lee are going through uh, Chernobyl, um, mm-hmm. the HBO offering that talks about a uh, not current, though there is one, uh, nuclear disaster in <laughs> Russia. Um, and uh, Spencer does his segment of being nerdy. It is uh, Spencer's Wikipedia dives, and they go through uh, the recap of the episode. Um, it's more of a life. It's more of a life's choice than a segment, but I appreciate the <laughs> confining of that. I, for the podcast, it's a segment. Gotcha. Um, we also have whiskey on the weekends, which hopefully will become uh, get to a fairly regular release schedule on uh, some Fridays before, so you can enjoy Whiskey on the Weekend in your weekend, as we do with our weekend. Um, There are also uh, Mangum Laughs and Mangum Hoops, which are um, much more irregular than uh, pretty much anything else that is even vaguely predictable by the physics that we know. Um, and if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for any of those, um, but also specifically for Mangum Reads, there is a contact us link in the top right of uh, mangumtalks.com. We read all of those um, and uh, pay attention to those and take those as suggestions. Um, and hopefully in the not too distant future, we'll have some more Mangum Reads content coming your way, um, which I believe will be somewhat dear to Sarah's heart. And so hopefully I don't trample too much on that. And Spencer is a willing, um, straight man. My pure glee buoys us all. As it should. On that uplifting note, it has been a pleasure, guys. It has been uh, fun talking about the likeness for over three weeks. I think in the end we all enjoyed it, though it... Has its has it, its ups has and its sounds, as any novel does. But until next week, looking forward to more material and looking forward to our listeners reading along with us. Happy night, y'all. Bye, y'all.